Hello and welcome to Science on Trial and Error. In case you haven't been here before, I'm Kasia and I'm a PhD student in developmental biology at ISD Austria. In this podcast, I chat with researchers about their lives inside and outside of the academia. Why? Because I believe it's important to share our stories, especially now when the usual ways of meeting new people are very limited. And who knows? Maybe my guest stories will inspire you to try something new or help you with finding your way in science. Or maybe it will bring you comfort of knowing that a lot of the other scientists out there share your everyday struggles and difficulties. Whatever the reason, I'm glad you're here and I hope you will stay for longer. Okay, this is very exciting. It's already episode number three. And today my guest is Maciek Karlin. He is a Polish researcher currently doing his PhD at the Institut Curie in Paris. And he's working in the group of Antoine Coulomb on enhancer-mediated gene co-regulation within the 3D genome. Me and Maciek have actually met during our bachelor studies in biotechnology at the University of Warsaw. And even though we officially continued our studies there for the masters, we were doing our research externally and didn't overlap so much. So it was great to catch up with Maciek. Besides his lab work, he plays violin and loves traveling. As a PG student representative, he's very committed to improving the lives of other students. And somehow he still finds the time to take on new initiatives. But find out more for yourselves. Enjoy, stay in touch to let me know what you think. And please welcome Maciek Karolin. Hi, Maciek. Thank you for accepting the invite to talk on my podcast. Um, it's nice to see you after a while. Yeah. Hi, Kasia. Nice to see you too. And thank you very much for inviting me. And especially at so early stage of developing your podcast. So it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about your work. And I'm very excited to hear what you've been up to since we, um, yeah, we've been studying together. So it's been a while. Um, so you're currently in Paris, right? Yes. And how is the situation there with the COVID? Uh, since today we've entered the third lockdown. Basically, there were two before and uh, they were like nationwide. So the whole France was confined. And this time they went uh, more towards the approach with like closing just the region. So basically the whole region of Paris and Ile-de-France is closed right now. But to me, it didn't change much, basically, because I can still go to work. I can still go out to shopping and all stuff like that. So fortunately for me, what was actually the most important for me was that the, they didn't close our institute. So <laughs> I didn't have to stay at home again. Because the first lockdown, it was really, it was like two and a half months that oh, I wow. stayed here. And yeah, we were not able to go to the lab. So that was quite challenging time. And I would prefer to not do it again. So well, I'm quite sure. happy that I'm still able to to do my work so yeah i can understand that so you're currently writing your thesis right yes i started some time ago and how's the writing going uh it's slow it's very <laughs> slow especially that uh, i'm still doing my experiments so trying to balance the time between doing the experiments and finding the uh, time to write it's challenging mm -hmm. basically but uh, i think i'm getting better at that so <laughs> i i try to have at least one day at, uh, per week 
where I don't do any experiments, no analysis, nothing like that. I just stay home and try to focus on writing. And I think that's, uh, that's the approach that I'm going to take. So what I'd like to do at the beginning, just to kind of relax, is to, to talk a bit about uh, what helps you focus to work in the lab. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you have any kind of music that you like to put in your headphones when you're working, or maybe you're listening to like podcasts, or, or what is it that keeps you focused or actually keeps you in a mood to, to, do, the, to do the work? It's totally music uh, because I listen to podcasts as well, but I feel I feel like hearing other people's talk it distracts me. So I totally prefer to to do the music. And for me, it's actually the classical music. I know a lot of people actually do classical music to to, to help them focus. And me recently, I found that very nice violin sonatas of uh, Schumann, and I'm a huge fan of those. You're actually playing violin, right? I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now, since I moved in Paris, it's uh, a bit less. And also because in the building that uh, I live in, the, the walls, they are kind of made of uh, made of paper. So basically you can hear everything what uh, my neighbors do. So I also try not to be too annoying for them, especially that we are on confined and people spend uh, a lot of time at home. So I just try to be respectful as well. Uh, but yes, I have my violin here and whenever I can, I try to to play. Also, it helps uh, a lot with relaxing, so... Yeah, I think classical music has, you know, it also doesn't have the text, so it doesn't distract you with the words. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. But it can really change your mood quite, quite easily. Yeah, and yeah. So you are uh, working in Institute Curie, right? Yes. Uh, And it's the group of uh, Antoine Coulomb. Exactly. Um, So how about we talk a bit about your current project? Can you can you tell me more? Because I'm actually very curious. I just saw the title. So Mm -hmm. let's let's go into that. The project that I'm doing right now is basically focused on the uh, three dimensional genome organization. You know, the the average length of uh, of DNA coming from just one uh, human cell is about two meters. And this DNA has to be packaged into the very, very small volume of the cell nucleus, which is about a few five, maybe to 10 microns in size. So how do you fit this two meter long uh, strength of DNA uh, into such a small volume? And at the same time, all the processes happening in the nucleus must happen as well. You know, there's DNA replication, DNA repair, gene expression, basically, and the timing of gene expression, like expressing uh, right gene at the right time. So this has to be very precisely regulated. And so this kind of imposes another constraint on taking into account this whole length of DNA that must be packaged into the nucleus. And uh, what I'm investigating is basically how this packaging of DNA in the nucleus, how uh, does it affect gene expression? I'm mostly interested in uh, regulation of genes uh, by enhancers. Mm -hmm. And uh, one feature of this three-dimensional organization is that uh, there is a specific level of this organization, which spans the range of uh, kilobases to megabases. And uh, within this range, uh, there are three-dimensional structures which are called topologically associating domains, or TAT. So basically, you can imagine that TAT being, if you think about this uh, two-meter thread of DNA, you can think of TATs as a small knot Mm -hmm. uh, at the length of this uh, this whole DNA. 
So basically what I'm looking at is how enhancers communicate with, with genes inside of, the, of those small knots and how uh, gene expression is actually co-regulated uh, within those knots. So basically what we are using in, in our lab are the imaging approaches. And uh, what I do is the uh, fixed imaging approaches. Okay. So uh, all kinds of fish, both DNA and uh, RNA fish. But still the scale that you need to look at is very small, right? So... Yes. Do yes. you need to use uh, do you need to use a special microscope or is it possible with like normal confocals? Uh, no, so we don't use confocals. We, we actually we just use the regular uh, wide field microscope because really? for the fish approaches is quite good. And uh, I'm not yet at the scale where you actually need the uh, super resolution microscope okay. because okay. Th those are the very yeah. special ones that let you go below the diffraction limit. But actually for for what I need, uh, just a regular white field microscope is okay. Okay, so you are doing the the fish, which is the fluorescence in situ hybridization, just for the people who are not um, biologists. Yes. And you are looking at the genes that are co-regulated by the same enhancers within this this TAD regions, right? This is what you said. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So exactly. This could be actually, because it's a knot, the genes that are not super close to each other in the DNA, but because of this formation of the knot, they get closer together, right? Is this, is mm -hmm. am I understanding it yes, correctly? Yes, I mean, the, the, like, if you think about relative genomic distances between those genes, they are also quite uh, close to each other mm -hmm. because, to you know, the size of those stats it goes up to one megabase okay so one megabase actually compared to like the whole chromosomes that can be like hundreds of uh, megabases is actually relatively small so still uh, it's true what you said that uh, they come close together in 3d space but it's also true that they are relatively close to each mm -hmm. other uh, in the genome so are there any specific genes that you are looking into or is it more general question uh, so I'm working on one very specific locus because the constraints that we put on ourselves before starting this project were uh, there were a whole there was a whole list of criteria basically but one of the criteria was genes to be regulated by uh, estrogen mm -hmm. so the the model system that we use is the breast cancer cell line MCF7 uh, in which you can just add, you know, the estrogen, the hormone to the media, and then many, many genes of those cells will become upregulated. So I studied the locus with three genes mm -hmm. uh, that are upregulated by uh, estrogen, and uh, they actually reside within two adjacent tats. So I have two genes that are in the in one tat, mm -hmm. and one gene that uh, belongs to a tat that is just uh, neighboring to to the first one. And they are all co-regulated because they respond to the same inducer. So that's actually a very interesting question because what we are trying to understand is the multiple levels of co-regulation. If the co-regulatory mechanism, if you think about it uh, as a hormone, as uh, mm -hmm. estrogen, then you can say that, you know, the thousands of genes that get uh, upregulated or downregulated are co-regulated because they all respond to uh, estrogen. Mm -hmm. But there are also like more local levels of co-regulation that are provided by, by TATS, by those uh, 3D structures, because uh, from the literature, we know basically that, for example, during differentiation of mouse embryonic stem cells, so that's something that other groups have shown, that uh, during differentiations, uh, genes from the same TAT show this co-regulation. Mm. It's a feature that, is, that has been observed uh, for TATS as well. 
why we uh, try to understand both of the stimuli on one side on one side this uh, induction with estrogen and on the other side this local uh, effect of that that makes it a bit more complicated and that's why we try to understand how all those different things uh, might affect the correlation that we see and that's probably not all uh, all the factors that uh, affect the coregulation because okay we can say we can try to understand how estrogen affects this how tats affect this and then within tats how enhancers affect this because enhancers can uh, uh, skip some genes you, you can have i don't know let's say five genes in a tat and one enhancer might regulate only three of them so then okay so then what happens to the other two mm-hmm. there are really many levels that we try to disentangle and it's not always the easy task so the formation of these TADs, um, how is this regulated actually? Like, is it something that is epigenetically kind of regulated based on the uh, structure of the chromatin or is it sequence based? How, how does it work? Since, since few years, basically, the, the most popular uh, explanation for formation of TADs is uh, a process called loop extrusion. Mm-hmm. So basically at, uh, at the boundaries of those TADs, in the, there are specific sequences which can be bound uh, by an architectural protein uh, called CTCF. So basically if you have a chromatin fiber, uh, the ring-shaped cohesin sits down on it and start extruding the loop, mm-hmm. basically, until it uh, reaches those convergently oriented CTCF sites bound by CTCF. And binding of CTCF creates kind of a roadblock on which the cohesion ring will stop and mm-hmm. therefore the TAT or loop will, uh, will be formed. Ah. So this is very recent research. Yes. So basically, this, uh, like the whole field in general is quite, is quite young. It's I very would say, hot, because yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of things are happening. And basically, the, the first techniques that were uh, developed to, to study these kind of questions, it's like the, the matter of, of the last two decades. So it's really, uh, really a very young and dynamic field. And when talking about loop extrusion, we are really talking just about the last decade. So that's a really, really very this recent is amazing. Thing, yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. So, okay, your research currently is like PhD project is kind of ending because you have to write your thesis. And um, yes. how does it, how did it work? You, you applied to, to Curie and your studies had like a limited time of contract or? I basically applied to the Institute Curie International PhD program, ICT3I. Mm-hmm. And while I was applying, basically there was a list of, of uh, projects that I could uh, choose from. And I just decided to apply for, for the one uh, I'm doing right now. And the funny story actually about this, about applying to this project was that uh, I was looking for a PhD position and I was studying like many institutes, many different programs. And actually I came across a, of, of the Curie program twice. And at the first time, like I, I saw the titles of those projects, uh, you know, the very first selection was, I look at the title and mm-hmm. does it seem interesting or not? The title of the original project was like crazy long. It was like three lines of text. And I basically rejected that uh, after just seeing these three lines of text because I could understand nothing out of that. So uh, <laughs> after the first uh, after the first attempt, I didn't even think anymore about applying to Curie. And then maybe like two months later, actually it was just a few days before the end of uh, application process, I came across again. 
And this time I didn't only stop at, at the titles. I, I went uh, more into the description and I found, oh, actually, it's not that bad. This project seems very nice. And and the link to epigenetics and the genome studies, which was something that I was interested. So, oh, yeah. Uh, so I applied, and after the first round of selection, I got an I got a reply saying, "Okay, that your documents are fine, so you can go into the second uh, second round." Uh, which uh, were the interviews. So I got invited to come to Paris for nice. the uh, almost a week interview session, which was very nice. I, I was really impressed by uh, by the whole organization of uh, of that time. Yes, so a few days after those interviews, uh, when I came back actually to the U.S., because at that time I was living in uh, in the U.S., uh, so a few days later I got an email saying that, okay, you are accepted, so welcome to Paris, basically. That's amazing. I mean, the, I find these interviews really, really good thing because you can just see the place and, and just get a feeling. Like, you know, yes, of course exactly. the, the interviews itself are important so that you can meet the PI, but I think the whole process of going to the place helps you make an informed decision, which is why I feel bad for people that have to apply now because of COVID. It's it's much harder to get the feeling of the place, you know, exactly. and, yeah. and to see, yeah, and to see how this works. Before we we discuss more about Paris, I actually want to go back a bit in time. Uh, so what I also like to ask people is, um, how how did your love for for science and for biology started? Because I know that you you have been actually quite focused on on the epigenetics and on like the genome regulation throughout your whole let's call it like bio career. Yes. Um, but what actually drove you to this point? Did you have a very influential teacher? Or was it something that was actually in your house? Like, was science important in your house? So, actually, uh, I was just recently thinking about that. And I think, like, my uh, interest in, in biology in general, that started already in the primary school. Mm-hmm. But I remember that while being a very small kid, like, maybe seven years old, so I didn't yet have any, like, particular knowledge about biology or anything like that, uh, I just got this uh, plastic microscope. <laughs> it was a very, very simple microscope. It was basically a toy, but it had this small mirror that I had to adjust properly to just be able to see anything. And I remember I, uh, my mom, who was at that time basically the uh, director of, mm-hmm. uh, of the school, she contacted me with uh, the biology teacher from that school who gave me a few samples. So oh. uh, I was able to observe. And that was actually, I think, my very first uh, experience with uh, science. But I must say that, yeah, during primary school, it was not, uh, this love for science, it was not there yet. Basically, mm-hmm. it's, I think it started really in, uh, on the later stage. At the same time, I was also really interested in like tourism and geography. And mm-hmm. I was always took it, telling myself that I'll become a geographer or, <laughs> uh, yeah. And actually, when I went to the high school afterwards, I went to the class that was profiled for, uh, on geography and economy. So that was not really something related to uh, biology at all. But somehow this uh, interest in biology was still there. It was not just kind of my primary interest at that time. And I was very lucky to meet another uh, amazing biology teacher in my high school that uh, from which 
uh, really the serious thinking about uh, biology started. And I remember very precisely when was that, because it was a class about uh, biotechnology oh. and what biotechnology does uh, and how is it helpful in, uh, in today's world. And I remember it was the first time we were learning about a PCR technique. And I was so amazed. How is it possible to just, you know, amplify the DNA and, you know, you just put a little bit of DNA and then there is this one or two hour uh, procedure after which you get a tons of, of the same identical copies of DNA. And that's what I found was amazing. And this is really the moment for, on which I decided that uh, I want to study biotechnology. Actually, you come from north of Poland, right? Yes, and, yes, yeah. And then you moved to Warsaw to study biotechnology at the University of Warsaw, where we actually met. Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, and there you were working in the group of Professor Jerzmanowski, right? Mm -hmm. So you were working yes. on on chromatin dynamics yeah. in the in plants, right? Exactly this. Yes, yeah. So how did you how did you like the biotechnology studies in the end? Was it what you were hoping for? Yeah, exactly. So in the end, uh, I mean, I liked a lot what I got into and the project that I did uh, in the lab of Professor Ismanowski about plant chromatin and epigenetics. But I think when you really look at the very strict definition of, of biotechnology, it, it's not what was that interesting because, as you remember as well, we had uh, courses on really on biotechnology and how to uh, apply biological processes in uh, in industry. But that, in the end, was not something that that was like really interesting for me. I really. Uh, started to like this, basically what happens in the nucleus, so all this genetics and epigenetics. So that's what I found most interesting. So um, why did you decide to actually, like, were you interested more in the, in, the, in the genomics and genetics or was also something there that was driving you towards plants or plants was just a... No, that was actually not. Plants was was not the very first choice because I remember there was this idea that oh, who studies plants? It's so boring. Like <laughs> nothing interesting happens in there. But to me, I think it was like the thing that I liked about epigenetics in general was that uh, this whole array of techniques that you can use, like starting really from genomics approaches like chip seq, RNA seq all the way to the imaging. So I must say that since I had this very first microscope, I always like to observe things. Yeah. And that's why basically when choosing PhD, I, I try to go into imaging labs because I just like to see things. And I think doing microscopy is just the easiest thing to, to see things and not try to you know, infer based on uh, some other result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, coming back to this uh, genomics, epigenetics, that, that was, uh, I think, again, that uh, this variety of uh, techniques was something that was interesting. And since it was in plants, then I, okay, I just decided, okay, Whatever. I can just go and learn all those techniques and then I can apply them like anywhere. And I, I don't think that plants are boring at all. So Actually, from the genetics point of view, plants' genomes are very interesting, right? Yeah, There's... exactly. Because plant genomes, like compared, uh, compared, for example, to the human genome, like plant genomes are much, much larger. Exactly. Yeah, that's totally a very interesting model to to study. Yeah, I agree. So, so you did your bachelor's there, and I think I remember that during your master's, you you actually went abroad for a while, right? Yes, I did. So I uh, applied for an Erasmus exchange. Mm -hmm. 
which happened actually also to be in Paris. And uh, <laughs> there is also a funny story about that because uh, I remember there was a list of, uh, of the universities that uh, our faculty had uh, contact, to, had agreements with. So uh, it was not just in France, but I remember Spain, Sweden, in Germany, so there was plenty of choice. But uh, I always want to, wanted to try to live in France because uh, I've been learning French for quite some time. But uh, the university of my first choice for Erasmus was not at all in Paris. It was uh, somewhere in the Lorraine region. It was basically dictated by the high cost of living in Paris because I, uh, I've read before, like, while making my choice, uh, I was taking into account, like, how much I can afford with the yeah. stipend that I get from, uh, from Erasmus. So Paris was not at all my first choice. There was an interview and I got accepted and I picked the Université de Lorraine as my first choice. And I remember on the day that the Erasmus coordinator at our faculty, when she had to send all the papers, she wrote me an email saying that, oh, uh, you know, Université de Lorraine, they uh, withdrawn uh, from the agreement oh, with no. us. So uh, you have to choose something uh, something else. So I just thought, okay, I'm, I'm taking Paris and just still send my application and uh, yeah so that's how I ended up in Paris and uh, a nice thing about uh, the project that I was doing was that uh, Professor Irmanowski my uh, advisor in uh, during bachelor's and master's he knew uh, another PI in uh, here in Paris at the Université Paris Sud and uh, INRA which is the French uh, Agricultural Research uh, Institute. So they decided to conceive a collaborative project just, uh, you know, to be able to study uh, uh, things that she was interested in her lab and things that we are interested in uh, our lab in Poland. So, so this ended up being your master's thesis? Exactly, yes, yeah. <clears throat> so for how long were you in Paris, actually? Uh, it was six months. It was okay, like uh, half a year of exchange. Yeah, it was quite short, but uh, again, thanks to the fact that uh, we were talking about this project, because, you know, the recruitment for Erasmus, it was happening already quite some time before I actually went in Paris. So we had the time to discuss the project and, because, you know, we've planned the thing is that uh, they need time to grow, they need time to produce the seeds. So I actually spent that time before actually going to Paris to uh, produce some material that uh, I could later use. And since uh, my exchange was at the first year of, uh, of master's, then I still had the whole second year where I could continue basically this research to be able to make it my uh, master's project, which became quite big in the end. So, so this was also chromatin dynamics related research, right? Yes. So that was really, this project was really going into mechanisms of uh, how chromatin is dynamic and how this dynamics is mediated by uh, linker histones and HP1 protein homology plant, which is called LHP1, which is basically involved in the uh, formation of uh, inactive chromatin, the heterochromatin. So were you doing also a lot of imaging during this project or? Yes, yes. So a huge part of that project was to image the uh, nuclear distributions, uh, mm -hmm. relative nuclear distributions of uh, this LHP1 protein and of uh, H1 histone variant. Um, you went to Paris kind of, it was a bit lucky, but in the end you still ended up kind of going consistently in this direction of your interest in genomics and, and uh, genome regulation. And yes. then you finished your master's, but you actually didn't apply right away for the PhD, right? You went for yeah. a year to US, which is also mm -hmm. super exciting. Um, yes. So you applied for this Fulbright stipend? Was it was mm -hmm. that? 
So yes, so during the second year of my master's, I, I mean, a lot of people already from our faculty were deciding, okay, are we staying in science or not? And some knew right away that they will leave science and go to work into industry, whereas other ones were already applying for the PhD. And I still didn't feel yet like, uh, do I already want to go to PhD or I would just prefer to explore something else? And I was, at that time, uh, I was not sure about that. And there came this possibility to apply for the uh, for this Fulbright program. It had a very, very long name. It was like visiting, uh, research, gradu- graduate, traineeship program, something like that. Uh, so I, I just applied. I just thought I would give it a go. And this would give me some more time since this, uh, this program was running for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought this would give me some time to, to decide what I want to do after uh, um, after the university. Uh, in the end, I ended up being uh, invited to uh, Oklahoma Research Foundation in uh, Oklahoma City. The project was actually not, uh, it was still in the nucleus. I still got into the lab that was uh, studying the DNA replication in, uh, in ZBrush this time. So okay. not only I changed the subject a little bit, but also the model system. First of all, from what I'm hearing by now, it seems like your your actually your path was very very consistent. Like you really stayed yeah. within your your topic of fascination, which is more related to genomics and nucleus and and the processes. And on the other hand, you were kind of trying to gain more experience with trying different techniques mm-hmm. and trying different maybe systems a bit uh, to really see what interests you. Right. So you yeah. said. The, the yearly traineeship or whatever internship that we you did in US was supposed to give you an idea whether or not you want to stay in science. And, uh, well, afterwards you apply for your PhD. Uh, so I guess it really persuaded you. Was mm-hmm. there something in particular that really pushed your yourself towards the PhD? Or was it just the, the research that was new? Or, or what was the reason? I think it was the the possibility of you know still being curious and still trying to explore new things because that, at that time this was really like quite a long project that uh, and this was really like because we were waiting uh, we were working on the paper uh, at that time as well and I think it it showed me how. Uh, if you have a you know at the beginning of each project you have a very specific goal that you are trying to reach, and then during the project there are like unlimited number of like side roads, side projects that open. And I think that that's uh, uh, what got me to stay, uh, to stay in academia and to pursue the PhD. Like this fact that uh, there is so many possibilities that uh, open while during your project, but basically the possibilities to, to explore are endless. There is going to be always something new, something unexplored that you can try to, to look at. Yeah, I think I think it's it's important to realize this, and I think sometimes during your studies you are so, like you know, a bit stuck in the in what you're doing that you don't realize how much is happening. I think conferences help in that, but of course, getting a different research experience also can open your eyes a bit. But touristically, you also manage to travel quite quite a bit. 
Ah, yes, yes. It was thanks to the contract that uh-huh. was constructed in a way that, and they also the goodwill of, of the PI that uh, I was working with, because I mean, I can imagine that they take a new person and, you know, might be hard for them to, to let this person like to go and not focus on work that much. But uh, during my path, I was always very lucky to meet very nice people that value actually the work-life balance and that allowed me to also push my passion for traveling. So That's super important important so what was the most memorable trip in u.s in the u.s oh that's uh, hard to say but i think i would say the the, the, the trip that we did uh, it was actually almost uh, toward more towards the end of, of my stay in the u.s where we went to california mm-hmm. all those beautiful natural parks that are there uh, i think i was most uh, impressed by yosemite because we did a day hike oh. in there and it's really really a beautiful place So, yeah, I think if I were to choose which one was the best trip, I I would say it was that one, probably. That sounds really cool. So it seems like like you really like the work there. Were you actually considering trying to apply for a PhD in US or was it something that you didn't really want to do? I thought about this uh, for some time, but when I realized that, you know, the the academic system in, in Europe... And in the U.S. uh, or Anglo-Saxon countries uh, in general are very, very different. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., the thing is that when you finish your bachelor, you can go directly in PhD, which on the other hand takes very long. It's not like three, four years as as it is in Europe. It's really like, I think, five years minimum. Mm -hmm. And the first one or two years you basically spend... uh, taking classes so it's yeah. kind of a, like the beginning of your phd in there is what we call as a master's mm-hmm. here in europe but i kind of didn't want to get myself into like kind of doing masters again since i had it done already and i thought it would be a bit of waste of time mm-hmm. so that was one reason and the second reason was that um, most us universities they require to, you to pass the first the language test and gre and thing is that it's crazy expensive so mm-hmm. i was not really really to to pay for that and second thing is that GRE is really a very particular test in which uh, they do not only it's like a general knowledge test basically and there is like a language part in that as well in which uh, you have to learn on average like three thousand of words that uh, no regular English speaking person even uses Mm -hmm. so uh, I found it was like a bit too too much of an effort for uh, uh, staying there for five years at least yeah. that was also the one thing that uh, I didn't want to stay away from my family that for that long sure and yeah going through all these tests paying all this money just <laughs> to spend first two years on repeating what I did in my master's so yeah in the end I thought that staying in Europe would be better choice than that So you were looking for, as you said, you had a specific scientific interest. You wanted to work in, on chromatin dynamics. If I remember correctly, because I actually also looked into Kiri when I was applying, uh, is that you apply for a specific project that actually already has been kind of pre-designed by the PIs. So uh, yeah. was it something that you actually liked, that the project questions were kind of set already and you could right dive into work or was it something that you didn't really care about when you were looking no so so that's actually not something that i was uh, that i cared much when i was looking but if uh, 
there were programs that would require me to really design a project from the beginning. I don't think I was at the point and I had like enough of knowledge to be able to, to design the project from the beginning myself. So actually the, the fact that it was already pre-designed, it was very nice. And also thanks to this, I, you know, I had a description and then I could see, oh, okay, so that's really something that I could do, right? That was a very good advantage, uh, I think, uh, at that particular point. So the project is designed for how, man how many years? Three, four? Yes, so you get uh, in the IC3I program, you get fun funding for three years, uh, basically, because that's that's how much money the uh, European Union gives. And the rule in, in France is uh, the basic timing for, for your PhD is also three years, which okay. is on the lower side, that's actually, when you compare it many, yeah, short. with many uh, European countries. But you can get extensions for, mm -hmm. for one year, but that's it, like... So I know that a lot of these programs uh, that are international programs, um, especially if they are set actually in French-speaking countries, even though they are they, the basic language is English, there's a lot of things that happen in French. So was it actually something that you were finding difficult or because of your knowledge it was kind of fine to, to adjust to, to working in a... French-speaking institute. I mean, I know that Curie is international, but still, France tends to have their own rules about that. Yeah. I mean, that really depends on the lab that you uh, end up being with. So, because, you know, Curie is composed of, there are basically like three sites. We are, the one that I'm working in is really in the center of Paris, but there are also two other sites, many hospitals that are uh, located more in the suburbs, but there are also researchers working in there. But I would say it really depends on the lab that you uh, end up being with. Because in, in my unit, the one that I work on, the, it's like crazy international. I In my lab, basically, the only French people is the PI and uh, one of the engineers that we have. And we are eight mm -hmm. in the lab in total. So, so my lab is like totally uh, international. But I know also the labs uh, that have the French only people. And there I can imagine that for uh, that it might be a bit difficult to uh, to adjust. But I think also on the other hand, like PIs do a lot really to be welcome and to make people uh, feel welcome and uh, not feel alienated because of <laughs> not knowing the language. Because for me, as you say, yeah, it was not much of a problem because I could speak French uh, before. Yeah. But uh, I know people like just coming here, it's, it might be very overwhelming to, to try to adjust. It's not maybe that much of a problem inside the institute, but for the everyday life, yeah, the French are really proud of their language and they, yeah, exactly. they use it a lot. And... So, okay, I think um, research work we discussed a lot, but I would like to talk a bit more about like what you do outside of research. And I think it's, I mean, it will be still research kind of touching, but first of all, what I find very cool is that you try to be very involved from what I saw in your resume is that you are not only a PhD student representative, but you also established this uh, this network for imaging researchers in France, mm -hmm. right? So maybe yeah. you can tell a bit about this and we can make it a bit more uh, known through, yeah. through the podcast. Yeah, so there are many uh, extracurricular activities that, uh, that you can do. So yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the... Uh, basically, every uh, unit has uh, their own lab council. So it, 
yeah, this meeting happens several times a year, and then this is really the time to discuss like how what are the current things like happening in the unit, like typically like all the renovations, for example, that's always uh, a huge discussion in <laughs> in our unit because uh, we are working in a very in, in basically the historical buildings where Maria Marie Skodowska Curie used to work and wow. uh, do her research. And me as a PhD student representative, uh, I'm really focused to try to bring up the the problems that uh, we are facing as PhD students, and especially now during pandemic, you know. The it's uh, special we are circumstances. The most affected and the most vulnerable group in in the whole, you know, like hierarchy of of the academic research. Yeah, so that that's one thing that I've been involved in. And the second one that you mentioned is this uh, uh, network of young imaging researchers uh, in France. Every two years we have this uh, meeting, which is called MIFOBIO, mm-hmm. uh, which stands for like uh, functional microscopy school. So uh, and we basically spend there a week. And this is like week of full intense uh, lectures, uh, courses, like practical works on the microscope. It's really a thing where people from whole France come in. There is like a special room uh, like dedicated for doing the cell culture. So basically like a, there are like hotel rooms that are made the cell culture with the proper hoods, proper incubators and everything. There are people who bring like million euro worth of microscopes with them. And you can bring your samples and you can test them if, for example, you want to learn su- so cool. super resolution microscopies and test like the like, you know, the newest and uh, craziest microscope that's on the market, for example, and you can see if uh, it helps to answer your question or not. And yeah, we thought that it would be nice uh, to have some space also for uh, young researchers. Mm-hmm. So we just decided to uh, organize the conferences dedicated strictly to, to this topic of um, imaging in uh, biology. Mm-hmm. Not only in biology, because we also have people who are interested in like biophysics and uh, chemistry, optical development and microscopes development. So there's this whole diversity of uh, topics for which imaging is useful. And I think it's nice that there is this uh, young people, young researcher community uh, like going on. So far, we've organized two conferences already. So one which happened in Curie um, two years ago, which we could still organize in person. And uh, last year, since it was already during the pandemic, we, uh, it happened in Institut Pasteur, also in, mm-hmm. also in Paris. And this one we did remotely already. But uh, still, I think it was a very nice and very actually interesting uh, and teaching experience to to try to organize such a meeting in uh, in pandemic and completely remotely. So yeah, yeah, it's not really easy. Good. It's not easy to yeah. do this. Uh, what's the name of the? It's called IMA Bio Young Scientist Network, ah, right? Just yes, in case so someone R- wants to check it out. Yes. This is great. I mean, I think it's really important to to get involved in such initiatives and. Yeah, it's it's very it's very good also for you, right? Because you get to know more people, you network, exactly, you exactly, you yeah. know what what is cool, what other people are doing, and you just yeah. stay on top of of what is cool in the field. Exactly, and this also fosters a lot of collaboration. There are many collaborations actually that happened through uh, through these meetings. Like those are very good. For example, for looking for a postdoc, then if exactly. you have a position, yeah. for example, you can just advertise it within the whole network and then almost every time there is someone from the network who is interested in in that so yeah so speaking of postdoc yeah. are you are you looking have you decided that you're staying in academia 
Uh, yes, so uh, I will stay in academia, at least for a postdoc time. I know that there are a lot of people who, even after a PhD, who want to leave, and uh, some of my colleagues also are considering to go into uh, into industry, but that's not the case for me, so I'm planning to stay, and uh, I'm looking for a postdoc. Not that much yet, because mm-hmm. uh, I have this comfort that after defending my PhD, uh, I will still be on the contract here in my lab so for a few months. So, to finish uh, the paper... I, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm planning to dedicate that time more, uh, that time more to to look for some possibilities. I mean, I have some labs already in my mind, and yeah, we'll see what's what's gonna happen. Are you planning to to continue in the same direction? So like chromatin? I think so. Yes. I, mean, I know a lot of people think that it's good to uh, to change the topic a little bit for postdoc, but I think that for me, like since. Uh, so the first thing is that when I came into this field of the 3D genome, it took me quite some time, to be honest, to like get a grip on what's going on sure. in the field and get familiar. And I'm not sure I would like to do this uh, again while switching to a postdoc. So I think seeing as it is very, very new, as you said, like it's a yeah. very hot topic. There's the constantly a lot of new things coming, so it can still feel like you are exactly, in a very new exactly. environment. Yeah. Like even changing the lab and getting to learn the techniques and mm-hmm. with the field developing so quickly, I think you are still kind of, you know, you will have still a lot of development and a lot of like self-learning exactly. uh, involved. What are you also looking for? Are you looking for something that will have the imaging as well? Are you still kind of very focused on... So that that would be nice, but then if if it would be imaging, I think I would try to move to live cell imaging, mm-hmm. and if not, uh, I would probably go to some genomics lab that does high C. So high C mm-hmm. is one of those mm-hmm. uh, standard methods to to investigate the 3D genome, and uh, I think having a combination of of skills, you know, on one side doing the imaging of the 3D genome, and on the other side having this. Uh, Knowing how to do those genomic approaches, I think that would be also very nice. Yeah, this sounds really cool. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of Group X3 that now are like going into this direction, so there's a lot of options for you. Yeah, especially that uh, even at the conferences, that's what I find interesting is that uh, there are like people from high C labs that present, and then someone tells them like, "Oh yeah, you could like try to investigate the, the, that by fish." And then they say, oh, no, we are not really the fish lab and so on. So that really... There's no overlap. There is, exactly. There's mm-hmm. not much overlap and there's not many labs that do that do both, actually. So. But this is a cool niche, you know, even considering yes, the future. Exactly, yeah. Like if you decide to, to stay in academia even longer, this yeah. is something that you could proceed. Yeah, this yeah is... exactly. And that's where I think the field will be going uh, now. On one side, it's not only like that much focused on biology, but there are a lot of, in the field, there are also a lot of physicists and mm-hmm. uh, computer scientists that uh, my lab basically is, uh, that I'm working at now is very interdisciplinary because in, in the lab there are, uh, there is me and there is one other biologist, mm-hmm. but uh, we also have the like, imaging engineer and we have biophysics, uh, biophysics part and we have the uh, polymer modeling part so we really have like very diverse array of people that uh, work on the similar questions from different angles yeah this is i think this is also the future you know like you you need a different perspective to to be able to to maybe properly approach the question or maybe just get the new angle at the question that actually can provide some new information mm-hmm. so i think this is this is really cool 
Okay, so I think there are like two things that are left that I usually like to ask. Mm -hmm. um, one is a bit, let's call it a serious question, which is related to the fact that, you know, seeing as, as we actually go through all the stages of academia and you want to stay in academia for your future, I was wondering whether we could maybe go into um, what do you think is something that is still not working really well? and something that you would like to see improved, either you want to work on it yourself or you just feel like it's something that is still lacking and it would be good to to kind of bring the, the attention to it. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think there's plenty of things that, that can be fixed in academia, but I mean, especially from, for young researchers, I think uh, funding is I, mm -hmm. like the, the most basic and uh, the most important thing is the uh, availability of, uh, of funds. Uh, and also all the administrative burden, which is uh, related to obtaining those things, because uh, I, I see like plenty, including my PI, plenty of young PIs that, you know, spend their time, a lot of time, like trying to get grants. And I think this, uh, not not only trying to get grants, but all the administration, all the reports that they need to fill and motivating, uh, like, you know, wanting to buy a computer for the lab and needed to motivate it uh, because they cannot, with some particular grants, you cannot buy the equipment because then it won't be used only for that particular grant. I think this is something that really needs to change because it takes crazy amount of time that you could really devote to, mm -hmm. to improving science and going further instead of spending it on uh, writing uh, motivation reports and so on so yeah i think i think this is very like it, some sometimes it's kind of missed by the institutions but really the amount of time that the pis spend on this it's it's so much of their time like yeah. they they really lose track of the science and they have to spend like half of their time just dealing with the bureaucracy. I think yeah, there are exactly. some institutes that are going in the direction that you are mentioning. Like I've heard, for example, the Janelia Institute in the US, they, oh, right. yeah. they have their own mm -hmm. funding that is kind of fixed for a certain amount of years and their mm -hmm. PIs don't have to apply for uh, any kind of funding. They can just mm -hmm. really focus on science. And, you know, looking at their track record, they're doing brilliant research. And really, yeah, exactly. when That's, they are yeah. able to focus on the research, it can it can actually move things much faster. And um, they, are totally, they are very, very well known in the imaging community, like Janelia Dice. So it's, uh, yes. Exactly, exactly. They are doing, you know, very cutting edge things and they are really fostering collaborations strongly. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that their, their people don't have to worry about funding is just, yeah. it puts you in a different state of mind and mm -hmm. you can... I think especially when you're doing basic science, because, you know, we always have a, an aspect of applicability to our work um, somewhere, you know, like in your work, it can be related to cancer, it can be related exactly. to development. But in the end, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are doing basic science. Yeah. And these are basic science questions. I think that's questions. really interesting what you're saying about this, you know, balance with applicability, because I have a bit of feeling that... Uh, a lot of actually funding bodies that they require you to prove, uh, you know, the applicability of your project. And that's something that I hate, to be honest, because, uh, you know, science started because of pe because people were curious and wanted to uh, 
just know the nature of things mm-hmm. and not their primary motivation was not necessarily you know to cure diseases which is still very important and uh, i can totally agree that a huge amount of money should go for that but i don't think that this should be connected with like giving less and less money every time for doing just the fundamental research yeah i i think this is the problem that you know you always have to prove how you know applicable your research is and and then of course we always can apply it to somewhere but yeah. but the basic research is what pushes a lot of these disciplines forward exactly. and yeah. we need it we need it yeah. and it is yeah it is harder to get money when you're doing basic research and and it is sometimes it just comes down to feeling like you you really have to push to find some sort of connection to something to get yeah. the money and it's totally just true. i don't really think this is how it should work it's hard to, it's hard to fix it but i think the more we like people speak about it and the more institutes try to become like different in their way of funding like you know they are trying to get some sort of funds kind of fixed so that they can sustain their researchers it's going to move in the good direction hopefully i mean yeah, yeah. we never know there is also a rule for us, for the scientists in that, because I can totally imagine, because, you know, it's the politicians, basically, who decide, like, how much money will go for basic or applicable research. And I can understand that for them, it's easier to give money, you know, to someone who will say, oh, I will cure cancer or, oh, I will, like, try to work on this disease versus someone like me who, who will say, okay, I want to investigate, like, coregulation of genes inside TATS and inside the 3D genomes. So, but there, I, I think that there is a huge niche for us, for scientists, to uh, just speak about this in a way that people can understand. Because without that, uh, this attitude of politicians and of society, I think it will not change. Yeah, I think this is something that I think all of my guests come down to in the end. Like, the scientific communication is is a crucial thing. And, and to be able to describe your research in a way that the person who is not a scientist can understand is super important. Exactly. And this is how we can change the way that society v- views the basic science, like that it can still change lives. It may be not as direct, but it, it does move the science forward. And, and it's something that I think a lot of people tend to push aside um, and you know in the current situation with the media being so loud spoken but like not always so well informed it's even more important like we have this responsibility to yeah. to try to at least educate or even just explain how things work from our point of view yeah, yeah. I agree with this completely so do you find it difficult to, to explain your work to your family and friends that are not scientists? Yes, a bit, yes, because uh, yeah, the, the first question is like, okay, so uh, are you going to cure cancer with that? So that it always comes down to this question when I'm at home and where people ask me about that. So then <laughs> when you're going to cure cancer or that? Because I also say that okay, my, like, my model system is breast cancer, breast cancer cell lines. Many people think, okay, that I'm going to just cure yeah. breast cancer yeah. with, with what I'm doing. So, yeah, that, that's really hard to explain, like, how things work and why is it also important, you know, to explore those many ways and just to know the nature of how things work to be able actually to push forward the uh, application research. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Okay, so I think we are closing. It's just one more question that I found a funny question. Let's let's consider this scenario that you can have a dinner with anyone who's either still alive or actually is already dead. And you can just ask them your burning questions or you can talk to someone who really inspired you. Who would you choose? Oh, oh. So, like so many people, and whether I, I would pick someone who, uh, who's living or not, we can go I, with I think I'll just go with a cliche that uh, I think it would be Marie Skodowska Curie <laughs> in, in the end. That uh, I would ask, like, how she was a completely pioneer woman, like, she did so many things that uh, no one at that time would think that a person would do, or even more that a woman would do, like, she was the first one to to do so many things you know to be the professor at the at Sorbonne to to get Nobel prizes and all like that and I think I would ask her like how she thinks uh, uh, how she thinks that the thing would uh, go and if she like was brought back to live to to be alive today I think I would ask her like uh, what does she think how the things went since the time that she was mm-hmm. uh, she was living and she was doing her research so I think it would be that, probably. I think this would be a really cool conversation to have. I mean, seeing, yeah. see exactly, as you said, she was a pioneer. I like to also think of her, you know, in the sense that she was a female scientist who got extremely successful, but she also had a family, and this family turned out to be extremely successful as well. Yes. So, you know, there she was doing it all and and really, like... I mean, she gained recognition, which is really important. But I would be interested in hearing the side of the story as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think with that, um, we can finish. I really wish you all the best with the thesis writing and with the defense that is coming in September, you said, right? Yes, yes. And yes. then looking for a postdoc, I hope you get really interesting offers and you find a place that will allow you to, to grow and to to still look into science and to maintain your curiosity and yeah thank you so much it was yeah, really thank cool you again for invitation yeah that was super fun and good luck for you as well because you are for you also is, is it coming not uh, that quickly probably as for me but uh, yeah, yeah it's coming but I, I still have a bit of time so but also a lot of luck for the podcast i hope it will uh, it will keep on and thank that we'll you. hear more interesting guests soon so thank you thank you and i hope you will yeah you will follow the other episodes and you will like yeah for sure yes (laughs) thanks